Friday, everyone. Welcome to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. I'm your host, Michelle Berard, founder and CEO of Urban Book Editor. And I'm super happy to share this hour with you where we examine all those places where spirit meets life and the joys and challenges that may bring. You guys know I like to start by thanking Ms. Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel for helping me create this space for us. Tribe Family Channel is home to an assortment of thought-provoking shows that explore life, spirit, business, and culture, including The Woman at the Well, hosted by Ms. Beverly Black herself. Somewhere in the Middle was born on Tribe Family Channel, and we've grown onto our own platform, but we are ever grateful and loyal to our roots. To paraphrase an African proverb, we are here only because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. Now, you guys know it's my birthday month, so we're actually on hiatus. On June 7th, we had the encore presentation of my interview with Cheryl Cooley, lead guitarist of the all-female funk band, Climax. Make sure you catch up with her on social media, where you can find her tour dates and other information, and check out her website. If you missed that show, you can still listen in. You can find our complete show archives, including the June 7th show, at the Somewhere in the Middle podcast.com. I also want to shout out Bruce George of the Genius is Common movement, which encourages all of us to embrace our inner genius and share it with the world. It is super important that we share this message with the youth, guys. It is just fundamental. They have to understand how important their knowledge, their skills, their abilities are. But it's not just for the youth. We all need to be reminded sometimes that the world needs our genius. Learn more about the Genius is Common movement at www dot genius is common.com since we're still on hiatus we've got another great encore presentation for you last year i had the great pleasure to interview author and speaker bernard n lee jr he is the author of a look back in time memoir of a military kid in the 50s books one and two so enjoy now i am delighted absolutely delighted to have my guest on tonight he is one of my favorite people in the whole wide world, and well, practically a neighbor. Well, he was practically a neighbor till I moved out to the West Coast, because everything uh, in Georgia is a little bit spaced out, so you'd be surprised what they call around the corner there. But <laughs> I am super pleased to have him. He is an author, he's a speaker, he's a mentor, and he is full of wisdom about life. Bernard N. Lee Jr. is my guest tonight, and he is... Uh, the oldest son of a career veteran of the U.S. Army. He has traveled throughout the United States and Europe during his childhood. 
The places he traveled, the people he met, and the stories he remembers are shared in his memoir, actually two memoir now, A Look Back in Time, Memoir of a Military Kid in the 50s. Bernie attended Howard University in Washington, D.C. He joined the Army ROTC program. He's obtained a private pilot's license so he can fly out here to L.A. and hang out, right? Um, he's, uh, he's got a regular – he had a, a regular Army commission and retired as a captain from the Army Reserve. Upon graduating, Bernie joined AT&T in New Jersey, where he worked until his retirement in 2003. He also taught classes at Somerset Votech and led a group called PACE, preparing high school students for STEM programs in college. Bernard Lee is a member of the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, the Georgia Writers Association, Books by Bratz, Writers Helping Writers, and Indie Authors Writers Groups. Mr. Lee is also a member of the Nuremberg Alumni Association and the How Big Is Your Dream Foundation. And like I said, Bernie was practically a neighbor of mine. He resided in he resides in uh, Conyers, which is right around the corner from where I was living by Georgia standards, that is to say, <laughs> with his beautiful wife Edwina, his wife of 41 wonderful years, where he teaches chess for advanced and beginning students in an after-school program, and where he writes and he tours and talks about his book. So I would like to welcome Mr. Bernard N. Lee, Jr. to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Thank you, Bernard, for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Michelle, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, I'm very <laughs> pleased to be on the show. Thank you to Beverly Black, who hosts this channel, and for your uh, invitation to have me as a guest. Well, I'm excited because um, how long have we known each other now? We've been knowing each other a few years now because we've worked on two books together. Yes, we have. It's approximately five years. Oh, my uh, goodness. We worked on the second book, and uh, two of which we worked on the first book. Wow. So that is a Time flies. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show because I know um, so much about you because of your books. And, you know, and I think you, I don't, I don't know if you remember, after going through your first book, I said to you, man, I think you've got a lot of interesting stories here, and they really give some great insight into parts of history even here in the United States that I kind of took for granted, cultural things and historical things that I kind of took for granted. So I really want to get into some of the stories that you talk about in your book, but I usually start my interviews with two questions. I don't know if you've, you've heard um, that I like to ask these two questions. And the reason I do is because I think they lead into um, what you're doing. So I'm going to ask you the two questions, and then we'll, we'll take things from there. Is that okay with you? That's fine. Awesome. Awesome. So here are my two questions. Bernard N. Lee, Jr., who are you? And how did you become who you are today? Thank you for that first question, who are you? I am a military kid. I'm the son of a career military veteran who for years, 27 to be exact, went from 
post to post here in the United States and Europe. I travel with my mother, my two sisters, and my brother, with my dad in the military. I am a poet. My mother and my sister love poetry. We, we spent our time doing a rhyming game where you begin the game by saying a word like blue, and then the next person had to say a word that rhymed, and the last person to stay in the game was the winner. I'm an author. In the eighth grade, I wrote an essay on Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, a famous German author and poet, and I won a contest out of 200 entrants. I was fourth place in that contest, and that started me on the rest of my writing career in uh, high school. I am an Army ROTC graduate, a drill team member. I went with our drill team in junior college to the Rose Bowl game, and we marched in the junior Rose Bowl game, and that was a highlight of my Army ROTC drill team career. As you said, I have been a private pilot. I don't currently fly, but I did, and I got that opportunity with the military uh, reserve uh, Army unit when I was in Army ROTC. I am a graduate of Howard University. I am a graduate of Cameron University. Cameron is in Oklahoma. It's a university now. When I attended, it was a junior college. Howard University is in Washington, D.C., I studied engineering, so you might ask the question, why did I begin writing? I am a teacher, as you mentioned, too. I taught at Somerset Vocational and Technical School. I taught math and science. I taught history and English as a practice teacher. I always wanted to teach. So it was one of those uh, bucket list items that I was able to accomplish after I left AT&T. And as you mentioned lastly, uh, I teach a class in chess for third, fourth, and fifth graders in an after-school program here in Rockdale County in Georgia. Uh, so that's the person of who, who I am. How did I become who I am today? Being a military kid, you must, if you want to enjoy that time, you must have an outgoing personality. You move every three years at a minimum. I recall living in Georgia and moving to Texas and only staying in Texas six months. So I had half a year of schooling in Texas before we moved to Oklahoma. Without an outgoing personality, you have difficulty making friends. And since you don't stay any place very long, making friends as quickly as possible is important. I had a specific way of approaching that challenge I felt that I belonged, and because I felt that I belonged, I was usually able to fit in to any place that I went. I lo I'm a lover of stories. I have always loved to tell stories, to listen to stories. I believe I have a keen observation. You need that when you're constantly moving from place to place to survive. You have to determine who your friends are, who your challenges are going to be, and how you're going to neutralize those challenges as soon as possible so the time that you spend there can be beneficial. I have an active imagination. I believe in the possibilities. I'm grounded in faith, and that has always helped me. I believe 
that being your brother's keeper is an important phrase, and it's not just a saying. In the military, people in the military look out for each other. In a unit, you look out for your squad member. You have their back. So grounded in faith and your brother's keeper is real for persons who've grown up in the military. And finally, I had an extraordinary mother who was a writer and a poet and who believed in my abilities, and I think that encouraged me to write. Wow, that was a lot. <laughs> well, no one person is, is just one thing, so that's, I mean, that's apropos. You know, it's it's very appropriate to have uh, all of that, but that, that life experience. There are a couple of things that stand out to me. And one of them, because you mentioned this, I think, in your um, dedication of your book about your mom in particular and her writing, your mom and your sister and their writing and their love of words. So what was that like, you know, kind of moving around and, you know, playing the games with your mom and, and, and kind of learning to use your words in particular ways for – I'm presuming entertainment for delight. Yeah. What was, what, how did, how did that come about? How did y'all start that game and how did that color things for you growing up? When you move from place to place, you spend a lot of time in the car and there are some things you can do in the car. Like you can look out the window and count cows, which (laughs) (laughs) but we learned to play that game. My mom was very, she was very deliberate about teaching us that words have meaning and that the more words you know, the better you're able to express yourself. And so that was just one of the games that we, that we played. Uh, it, was, it, was very, it was a very good time to be a kid because we spent a lot of time outside. We, spent a, we, were, we were the you-go-outside-and-play kids mm-hmm. uh, and don't come back in just when it gets dark or your mom would come to the front uh, steps and she'd call for you and you'd have to come in then. So I recall playing a lot of games. I recall being very active. And I recall that writing wasn't something that we did unless maybe we were in school or we had some spare time. My mom, on the other hand, wrote constantly. She wrote to my dad when he was away on assignment. She wrote uh, poems that she kept to herself. And she would share some of those with us. And so I think that kind of piqued my interest for poetry. I also had the chance to be in a poetry reading contest. I was nominated by the good sisters in my church who thought that I would be a good candidate to represent them. And this was in Augusta, Georgia. At the time, my dad was at Fort Gordon, Georgia, and we were living in Augusta, and so we, we got an invitation to be in a poetry reading contest. At that time, I was in about the fifth grade, and I went to the library, and I picked out a book that had been saved for me by the librarian. And I thumbed through the book to see if there was a poem in there that I might have an interest in. This particular poem jumped out. It was a poem about a fish a fish in a tuxedo. And I took that to be a good sign 
I'd never seen anything like that. So I thought, well, maybe that would be some that maybe that would be a good place to start. A fish in a tuxedo would make an interesting uh, presentation in a poetry contest. So we went to the contest. It was at Shiloh Baptist Church, and there was a lady on the door, and she invited my parents in to come sit in the back, and she ushered me up front to sit in front, and she said, we'll get started when um, Sister Annabelle is ready. Well, Sister Annabelle was late. At the time, I didn't know who Sister Annabelle was, but she was the primary judge in the contest. When she finally arrived, we all got our turn to present our poetry. And I started this fish poem, which was a very interesting thing to do because others did more serious work. But my fish was a fish to Penotion to come from the ocean and take in the sights of the town. So he bought him a hat and a bright red for that and a one-legged trouser of brown. He did a one-legged trouser of brown. Now, I had everybody's attention at the point where I begun that point. And I completed it and took a slight bow and sat down, and I got a good amount of applause. There were eight contestants. I finished in the top four. We had one week to come back and, and present our poems in the finals. My mother told me when I got home, you know, you can't do that same point that you did before. And I said, well, why not? She said, well, they've already heard it. So if you're going to do that, you're going to have to add something to it so it will be original. I pondered on that, and I finally came up with a stanza that I wrote myself. And the rest of the poem I was able to give when we came back. However, we were late getting to the contest. My father had decided to invite his friend. Uh, who was in the squad, in the military squad with him, and we went to pick his friend up and, the, and the, his wife, and the wife seemed a little agitated, and she wasn't ready. So we waited a half an hour for her. When she got in the car, she decided that our car was too small and that maybe their car would be better. So we got out of our car. We walked over to their place and got in their car. Now I'm pretty sure we're late. Then the worst thing that could ever happen, she realized that she hadn't brought her fur, her mink fur. So she started complaining about not having her fur. And my dad, wanting to accommodate uh, his guest, decided to turn around and go back to get it. Uh, not, needless to say, when we got to the, to the church, I was late. There was a lady on the door, and she was stomping her foot. Uh, in agitation, she ushered me up to the front, and two people had already given their poem. Now, there was a young lady there that I really, really admired. Her name was Lily, and Lily had done very well the first time. And, in fact, I was hoping Lily would win. That's just how much I admired her. So Lily gave her poem, and she gave a big bow, and everybody applauded, and that was great. I got up to do mine. Now, I must confess that I surely could guess that a fish trying walking would fail. But with little advice, he walked perfectly nice. On the very tiptoes of his tail, he did. On the very tiptoes of his tail. Well, that was the end of the poem. 
and this is the stanza I wrote. With his bright red cravat, his silky black hat, and his pants a rich darkest brown, he fast twirled his cane in a fashion so plain and strutted right on through the town, he did. He strutted right on through the town. I got applause across the room. <laughs> I sat down and I was so pleased. I could see the smile on my mother's face. I could see the proud look on my dad's face. I just knew I had won the contest. Actually, at that moment, I turned and looked at Lily, and Lily had a smile on her face, too. The first smile I'd seen looking at me. At that point, whether I won or didn't win didn't matter to me, and so we waited for the judges. When they came out, the prizes were announced. A kid won fourth. A young lady won third. Lily and I were the last two. When they announced me as second place, I was a little bit surprised, a little bit disappointed, but that was fine because Lily had won. What didn't set well with me, however, was when Mrs. Annabelle stepped up to the mic and said, I'd like to tell you all that Mr. Lee actually won first place, but because he was late, we decided to penalize him, to teach him a lesson. And oh, so no. we're making him second place. My mom was embarrassed. My dad was embarrassed. I was embarrassed for them. But I learned something. After it was over, Lily said that it was a shame that I didn't win, but I'd done very well. And, you know, the attention I got from all the contestants, and particularly from Lily, was more than enough for me to accept my second place and be okay. That was in Augusta, Georgia. That was in 1955. That was a true story from A Look Back in Time, memoir of a military kid in the 50s. Wow. That's such a fun story. I remember that one. That's such a fun story. You know, what? It, there are a couple of things that come out of that for me, though. One of them is that concept of manners. That's something else that really, like, kind of goes through your books is that concept of manners and honor, if you will. Not that there aren't slip-ups, you know, but with when you talk about your dad in particular, you talk about the way that he carried himself and the the dignity and the honor that he had in dealing with people. And the way that he was willing to, and both your parents really were willing to be so conciliatory with this lady who is making you late for your event, <laughs> you know, um, which may not have sounded like a very important thing to, to her, but it was, it was a pretty big deal to a fifth grader, I would imagine. And just yes, how your was. parents kind of, kind of massage that situation. I'm curious, how do you see that their behavior then versus the way that might've gone now? with other folks. Oh, I expect that that might have been very uh, a very different outcome. My parents were military. 
And that had a very special meaning for them. The military provided housing. It provided income. It provided good schools on post. And it provided a way of life that was uh, a very good way of life, especially for an African-American family in the 50s. We knew that anything that we did was reflected on our dad. His commanding officer might get a letter or a phone call if we did something that was not appropriate. And so you were very careful, my sister and I, and my younger brother and sister, to be always aware of what you said and of how you reacted in any situation. Being embarrassed would not be nearly as bad as making a scene and having the outcome of that scene be reflected against your father, our father, who might in turn find that his time in his service there on that post was more difficult than it needed to be. And so, yes, I think it might be different today because people aren't as necessarily reserved, but I suspect, I expect in the military it's probably fairly the same that uh, young people know that they must be a little guarded and that they must be aware that they represent not just themselves but both their parents. And at times, if your parent's wearing their uniform, you represent the country, the United States of America, as a military kid. Now, there was one other story I remember where this factored pretty big for you. Um, and that was the one where the kids were putting out the windows in the the abandoned house. Yes. <laughs> that story do you want to tell in, people about that? Uh, yes, I do. That story occurred in Oklahoma, in Lawton, Oklahoma, Fort, uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. It's an artillery base, and my dad did two tours in Oklahoma. He did one from... Uh, in, when I was in the sixth grade, and he did one when we came back from Germany. This story began with the Christmas holidays and my desire to get a present, which my parents had refused to buy me uh, for a couple of years prior to then. I wanted a BB gun, like most boys who were 12, years old, I wanted to be able to shoot out on the range, on the military range, with the other boys who had uh, BB guns. And so my dad had said no, my mom had said no for a couple of years, uh, but after the holidays, a friend of mine came, and interestingly, he had gotten this brand new gun, which was beautiful, and he told me two weeks after Christmas, that he was willing to sell it to me at a reduced price. I didn't understand why he was so eager to get rid of the gun. I probably should have suspected something wasn't right, but I was so happy that someone had made an offer to help me get what I wanted that I shared that offer with my parents. My father said finally that it sounded like a good offer to him, and he wanted to see the gun to see if it really worked. 
He checked it out, and yes, it was brand new. Yes, it was in fine condition, and yes, it worked. My mother was a little, still a little reserved, but she went along with my dad's decision, and my dad decided to get me the gun. I kept the gun close to me whenever I was outside. I made sure that no other kids used it, no other kids played around with it. I didn't shoot anything that was alive or anything that I knew I shouldn't shoot. I didn't shoot at anyone, or I didn't uh, make the gun a hazard uh, the way I saw some kids playing around. And then one afternoon at school, the assistant principal came to my room, and he motioned for me to come with him. I didn't know what was going on or why, I'd been called out of the room. As we walked down to the office, I asked, is there something wrong? And I didn't get an answer. When we got to the office, my father was there. This was a traumatic time for me. My parents only came to school when there was a serious reason to come to school or when I invited them to uh, a play or a concert or something that the kids were giving. And to have my father there unannounced was very disturbing. The principal looked at him and said, here's your son. Um, he's free to go. My father turned to me and said, come with me. I walked out. I didn't ask my dad any questions at all. I knew better than that. I knew when he was ready to talk to me and ready to share with me what this was all about, he would. We got in the car and we drove away. I didn't know where we was going, where we were going, but I didn't ask that question either. Finally, my dad asked me, have you been playing around in those vacant buildings near our subdivision? I answered honestly, yes, I have. Do you know about any of the windows that have been shot out and damaged in that, those vacant buildings? And that was when I had the shock of my life. I knew about the windows. I did not know who had shot them out. I didn't take part in anything that had to do with the windows. And at the moment, I was very afraid. We got to a building that was the military police building on the post. My dad escorted me out of the car, and before we went in the building, he said, don't say anything. I'll do the talking. If you've told me the truth, you should be okay. We walked down a long hallway, and we were confronted by a military policeman examined my dad's credentials and ushered us to a, into a room. It was bare. In the middle of the room was a chair and that proverbial one light hanging from the ceiling, but in this case, there was no bulb in the light. It wasn't working. There were spotlights on the walls, and my dad sat across from me, and the man who was in charge told me to take a seat. A gentleman came out from the office 
and talked briefly with my dad. And then he came over to me, stood in front, asked me my name, asked me where I went to school. And then he began questioning me about things that had occurred in the neighborhood, and in particular, things that had occurred in the abandoned buildings. I was questioned for a few minutes, and then he turned and said, I'll be back. And he went to talk with my dad. And he looked at my dad and he said, I know you. You're Sergeant Lee. And he said, yes, sir. And he said, you know, I've heard good things about you. And this is your, this is your boy? And he said, yes, it is. And he says, well, he tells me that he didn't take part in anything that went on in those buildings. And Sergeant Lee, because I trust your word, I'm going to trust his. I was so relieved. <laughs> I went with my father. We walked down the long hallway. And when we got outside the building, my dad put his arm around my neck, and we walked back to the car. That's a true story. I was very upset with my friend who had sold me the gun only a week after he'd heard that there were investigations occurring about the damage that had been done to the buildings. Wow. Only my, only my dad's reputation saved me from what might have been detention as a juvenile. Wow. That is, I mean, the the power of that story is really in the character element, you know, about your dad and his value and his word and his character and having such a good reputation. Yes, it was. And that's why we were always aware that anything that we did reflected on our father and his military career. So you guys have been listening to an encore presentation of an interview I had with author and speaker Bernard N. Lee Jr. So keep listening. Well, that can actually go a little step farther, too, because I don't know if you remember me telling you after I read your book, I said some of the stories in there just kind of made me keenly aware of things that I had taken for granted because of when I was born and the way that things had changed. Some would argue not significantly enough, but they certainly had changed by the time I was in school and whatnot. And the lux- I, I'm, I'm going to call it a luxury, even though I'm not sure it's a good thing. Um, the luxury we had of not necessarily having to maintain extended family ties in the same way that was probably what was evidently necessary um, for survival, um, particularly during, you know, pre, pre-civil rights is what I'm going to say. Yes. So, like, you talked about a road trip. This was when you guys were going to, y'all were driving to New York to fly out to go to Germany. I believe That's this correct. was one of the last stories in the first book. And y'all were staying at different family members' houses, but there was this one 
stretch of the trip that was pretty long, and y'all ended up having to pull over on the side of the road, and your dad going to get food for you guys, and the nervousness about him being gone so long and all that. Do you you mind sharing that? Because I thought that was really important. That was a powerful story for me. So for those of you who don't know, first of all, Look Back in Time is a series of vignettes of stories from Bernard's life, and all of them really tie together to tell the bigger story, but some of them are just really jumped out at me, and this is the one that jumped out at me the most. This story occurred in, uh, I was in the sixth grade, and I'd been going to school in Lawton, Oklahoma, and my father got his transfer papers to go to Europe, and he'd be stationed in Germany. And he had two weeks to report to fly out of New York uh, to report to his new duty station. I recall my dad coming home to tell us about the transfer. And I recall when he finished telling us about the transfer, him going into the kitchen, getting the trash can in the corner, dropping his papers in the can, his orders in the can, and lighting a match and starting a fire in the can. Hmm. His the, the assignment he was going to in Europe was that delicate an assignment. It was during a time when the European uh, powers and the U.S. powers were negotiating how they were going to operate after the Second World War. And so his orders were secret, and so he burned his orders. A few days later, after we cleared quarters, we all piled into the car to drive across country. Now, we were driving from Oklahoma to stay with friends in Virginia, and this was a long drive. And we stayed with friends because we weren't certain as you drove across country in 1956 that there were hotels or motels that would allow people of color to stay. And so we couldn't count on that. And so we would drive all day. There was no place along that drive between Oklahoma and Virginia that we knew of where we could even stop to go to the bathroom because the service stations in that, at that time were whites only. And so we would drive all day. You'd hold it all day, and we'd wait till night came to go to the bathroom. If you had to go to the bathroom during the day, you had to find an area of trees where you could be in a secluded place to go. I recall we stopped at night, and my dad and the rest of us slept in the car. And in the morning when I woke up, my sister had to go to the bathroom. So we were in the back seat. My sister opened the door to step out, and she was one foot from the edge of going off of the mountain. There were no railings. On the, in the area where we had parked. It was dark when we parked, 
So we had no way of knowing how close we were to the edge. My sister went out the other door and found a place where she could go to the bathroom. This was early in the morning, and we realized my dad wasn't there. We asked Mom where, where had Dad gone, and she said, uh, don't worry about it. He's gone to get us something to eat, and he'll be back. That was around 7.30 in the morning. A couple of hours later, we're still waiting in the car. Now, trucks are starting to pass us. Cars are starting to pass us. Some cars slow down, but they don't stop, and we're very glad that they don't because we're fearful. We don't know the people where we are. We're up in the mountains in Tennessee. We have no way of knowing um, where, you know, where, where the closest town is or where our dad has gone. An hour later, we're still waiting. And then my mother starts to become worried. And so she says a quiet prayer, which is something she always did. Uh, we stayed quiet in the back seat. We hadn't eaten, so we were hungry. But we didn't dare say to her that we were hungry and wanted something to eat. A short time later, we looked down the hill, and there was a big bend in the road. And if you've ever been through the hills of Tennessee and Virginia, you know that there's these hairpin curves in the road where you have to slow down going down the mountain. We saw a person coming up the mountain around a hairpin curve. He was too far away for us to tell who it was. But as he got closer, he looked more and more like someone we knew. When we were finally able to recognize our father, he had two bags, one in each arm, and he was walking up the hill as the cars passed him. We were never so happy to see him. We had never been so frightened of what might have occurred thinking about what would we have done if he had never come back. We remember that because on more than one occasion, traveling across country, until facilities were desegregated, that was the way military families, in particular military families of color, had to travel. Wow. That's why that struck me so, because that was not, you know, I was I was born in 68, so the experience is, is so different. You know, road tripping now, you can stop pretty much anywhere. Uh, you know, even when I was in college, you could, you could, you know, I could drive by myself on the interstate system. Uh, my grandmother didn't like it when I did that, but I did because I like to get up and go when I want to get up and go. And she remembered those times when you couldn't just get up and go and go and and think that you could travel like that without planning and without having some place to stay and all of those things. It was very dangerous. And I think that's what struck me the most about that particular story is we really, and, and my kids now, can take that for granted so much more. Yes, they can. Uh, those things have changed. Uh, and in the military on the post, we didn't encounter that kind of challenge. But the minute you went off post in most towns, 
you had to abide by the local ordinances and the state laws. And in many occasions, when we were stationed off of the post, those laws had not changed. And so we had to live between the two worlds, one in which you could expect to be treated fairly, and you knew what the rules were, and you knew how to abide by them, and another where you weren't quite certain how you would be accepted or what you might encounter, and you always had to be aware. Well, and that actually, we have a question from a, a, a caller, and the caller is asking about how you and your, you know, your father in particular, obviously, reconciled serving in the military in light of the racial tensions and how people of color were being treated in the United States. And you do touch on that in book two. You, you get into that in, in, in volume two of your memoir. So how did he... How did he deal with that? I know that was difficult for him in some ways because there were even issues in Germany, right? Uh, yes, there was. So uh, that's a good, that's a very good question. Remember now, this is 1955. It's only 10 years after the end of the Second World War. My dad grew up uh, in a family that was not your traditional family. His mother and his father both had died by the time he was five years old. He was reared by his sister and his aunt. In those circumstances, when he got to be a teenager, around 14, 15 years old, he was expected to go out on his own. And so he volunteered and joined the Marines at 16. Mm. He, lied about, he lied about his age. That was in 1943. He stayed in the Marines a few years, came back out, and we lived in Virginia for a while in the farm, uh, out in the farm country, but he found he couldn't get comparable work and he couldn't earn a comparable living in that environment. So he re-enlisted, this time not in the Marines, but he re-enlisted in the Army. He stayed in the Army 27 years. At that point in time, the military service paid a reasonably good wage. You had a housing allowance. You had health insurance. You had a pension plan. And you had a fairly orderly environment where you could feel that your family was protected and safe. So my dad did what he thought he had to do to take care of his family. Hmm. Now let me tell you what happened when we went to Europe. We went to Europe in 1957-58, and at that particular time in Europe, there was a lot of curiosity about people of color because they hadn't seen many of us, but there were not the strict laws, the Jim Crow laws that you can encounter here in the United States. So actually, soldiers in Europe were treated relatively well by the German uh, local citizens that they encountered. The problem that they had in Europe was with other soldiers who were from the United States who were aware that in the United States you couldn't do those kinds of things. You couldn't 
You couldn't walk on the same side of the sidewalk if there were whites walking and they recognized that you would be in their way. You had to get off the sidewalk and walk in the street. You didn't have that as a requirement in Germany. You could walk on the sidewalk. You didn't have to get off the sidewalk. And it was those differences that soldiers, soldiers of color, recognized right away. And what that told them was that the environment in the United States was different, that, not, that the whole world didn't see them as inferior, that they didn't have to abide by rules and regulations that they felt were unfair when they were outside the country. So that opened my eyes and the eyes of a lot of people who were in the military. And in 1948, when those soldiers came back to the United States to avoid some of the turmoil that occurred in Europe between people who felt those laws should be enforced in Europe as well as in the United States, the military was desegregated. The units in the military were desegregated by presidential order. And following that were the years that I write about in A Look Back in Time, memoir of a military kid in the 50s. It was those years in transition between desegregation and segregation that I grew up in the military in the 50s and in the 60s. And so to answer your question, yes, there was discrimination in the United States. Yes, it was difficult at times. Yes, you could say that the U.S. government was not, uh, was allowed those circumstances to exist and very often permitted them. And it didn't matter that you were in the military or a military person. If you were in town, you had to abide by the rules and laws and regulations in town. But as a whole, the military service protected young people and protected their parents from much of the overt racism that you would encounter in many parts of the country at the time. And I know for a fact, because I went back and forth between living on post and living off post, the stark difference between the two until over time, people got more custom and people of color received the same kind of voting rights and the same kind of housing rights and the same kind of other rights that other Americans had taken for granted. Well, that, that every time I think about the stories, um, that's what strikes me is that there's so many things that we take for granted now. I think that I worry sometimes. I mean, there's so much that I see going on with the young people and um, Black Lives Matter and stuff like that that makes me say, okay, there's a certain awareness because of different concerns or more visible concerns because of the cameras and the things that we can see now as opposed to just having rumors about or or having heard about or maybe reading an article in the paper. But I do I do worry a little bit that maybe um, kids today, and I have to include myself because I until I read your book, I didn't even know some of these things really uh, take for granted in terms of the way that we 
exists now. I mean, of course, everybody's got their story where they've run into a person who's caused them trouble, you know, whether it was when they were traveling or they were working or at school or something, but just to constantly be in fear of your life on a certain level, because that's what it feels like. I'm not sure if that's exactly how it's experienced, but just feeling like, wow, there was just like a constant, almost constant pervasive fear that had to exist when, whenever you left out of your neighborhood. Yes, that was unfortunate, has been an unfortunate time for us. That fear was talked to by our parents. Everyone's had those talks where they tell you how to respond when you're approached, where they tell you what to say and not to say, where your parents try to get you to understand that life is not always fair. People will judge you before they get to know you. And so if you want to have the best outcome, you have to give them a chance to get through the preconceived notions that they have about you until they get to a point where they know you, the person, not you, the person that they see in front of them with the preconceived notions that they have about people like you. It's a burden that's been carried. My generation carried it. I had those talks with my kids. And I guess what I have to say of today, I'm quite proud of young people because young people can see through the facade that adults carry. Young people don't carry the fear of other young people that adults seem to have. Young people will give each other a chance. And as long as that is true in the United States of America, where the young, given the faith that they have, the religion that we practice, the innocence that is there for many of them who haven't been damaged by an outcome that's been bad, that that will prevail. That will be what we finally decide is the country we want to be. And I believe the young generation gives us that chance. We have a choice. We can be fearful. We can not trust each other. We can draw apart. But there are many, many enemies, and you learn this when you're a military kid and your father is in the military. There are many, many enemies around the world who would love to see this country fail. And in spite of all the faults that you can point to, literally from the television and the radio and other broadcasts daily of the imperfections here in the United States of America, there are horrifying events that have been occurring in the rest of the world for the last decade where millions of people have been displaced from where they live, millions of people have had no home to go to, and millions of people have had no future to look forward to. So I'm hopeful. I've always been hopeful. I love the idea of America. I love the promise of America. And I love those who stand up and say they will fight to keep the idea, 
and the promise true to the Constitution that was written for it. And that is the only way I believe we will survive. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift things just a little bit, Bernard. We're gonna be coming to the top of the hour soon, so I'm gonna but I'm gonna shift this because I have another question from a caller. And the question is, what is your opinion about the importance of STEM programs, uh, particularly in communities of color? Uh, that's a very good question. And I believe that STEM programs are very, very important for the future. If you ask me how I became a writer, I'll tell you it was on my bucket list, and I had those gifts. If you ask me how I became an engineer, I'll tell you my father and I sat down when I was in the eighth grade, and we looked through articles written about careers. And among the top five careers in the United States at the time, Engineering was in the top five. And literally, we picked that profession based upon it being in the top five. Now, my father was an electronics technician. He taught electrical systems for guided missile systems in the military. He was one of the first instructors at Fort Bliss, Texas, to teach instrumentation for the Honest John rocket and the missiles that followed after uh, that particular rocket design. It was unusual for a person of color to teach other soldiers at that time, but my father did. And so I used to work with him. I used to design televisions and repair radios, and we used to put together heath kits uh, where you get uh-huh. your parts <laughs> in the mail. <laughs> yeah, and you I remember heath kit. <laughs> <laughs> and we would build radios, we would build radios and TVs. And so I learned with hands-on with my father. Now, why is STEM important for, for young men and women of color? It is the one area which we picked back in the 60s that would always be important in the workplace. Science and technology is still important in the workplace. Some of the best salaries that you can get coming out of college today is in the technical areas, in particular working with computers. So if a young person has the ability and has the desire and the inclination to tackle math, to be interested in science, to not mind working in a laboratory environment, sometimes by yourself, sometimes on a team, then you should give them a chance to try their hand at science, technology, engineering, math, and music, which which makes a very good background for a computer programmer. I taught programs for acceleration in engineering for students who wanted to get a good start in college in those technical areas. What I know is this. Math is an absolute science. You have a right answer or you have a wrong answer. It's a place where a kid who's able to master it can feel very proud of themselves 
and they don't have to take somebody's opinion of how good they are. You get the answer correct or you don't. So I would challenge parents to help young people get a good start in mathematics. ABCs of mathematics, you must know addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. And any way you can teach a child that as early as possible, I would recommend that you do. You must know your timetables. And don't let anyone tell you that it's not important that you know your timetables because it is. It's a basis for working all the problems you have to work in fractions, all the problems you have to work in algebra, in calculus. You must eventually solve those problems, and to do that, you must be able to multiply, divide, subtract, and add. If people of color stay in the music area, stay in the sports and athletics area, and excel there, that's fine. But that's only a small percentage of the opportunities that are available. There are millions of opportunities available in technology. There are millions of opportunities available in science. In particular now in healthcare, that's a wide open area. If I had to tell a kid who was in the eighth grade now, a profession you could go into that you would never have to worry about being unemployed for the next 30 years, I would tell them health care. Baby boomers born in 1946 all the way to the mid-60s will be needing health care for the next 30 years at least. So it's a lock. So, yes, you want your kids to be good in science. You want them to be good in engineering and math and you want them to, to take it those areas because that's where the jobs are going to be. Well, there you go, y'all. I mean, my kids have heard me say it more than once. We should be creators of technology, not just consumers of technology. And along with healthcare and technology, there's actually the healthcare technology field, which is its own, you know, kind of specialized area of technology that's going to need to be um, uh, have lots of jobs filled, and Biotech. you know I'm a big tech geek. Biotech and just and also just the software, just all of that software yeah. development to track everything, all those machines in the in the hospitals, um, all the smart devices, you know, even the pacemakers and things of that nature. All that stuff feeds back to computers now. It's it's just the whole thing has shifted, and there's a lot of opportunity in, in the technology side as well as the actual care side. There are 8-year-olds, 9-year-olds, and 10-year-olds that are playing Minecraft. It's a game that you can do on a tablet where you build things and occasionally you blow things up. It's a game that you can learn to code. If you can find a class for a young person, to be able to code and design their own game, I would suggest you do that. Kids learn so quickly when the game is fun. Learning is fun, but the techniques you need and the information you need to be able to design a game is the exact information and technology you need to do the design for banks, for airlines, for any other area, 
The coding is very, very, very similar, and as soon as a kid believes they know how to do that, the better. And fortunately, you know, when we were in Atlanta, I know there are a lot of opportunities out here too, but when we were in Atlanta, there were a lot of great classes, even for really young kids, to start doing things like you talked about Minecraft, um, but to start making their own games. There are um, really cool apps that they can start developing really early and a lot of online resources too. So I, I, I also encourage parents Anyone who's listening, if you've got kids, get them to stop just playing the games, but get them to create something, too. They may not appreciate it now, but when they get to college, <laughs> they will definitely appreciate uh, being able to do those things because it's going to be more and more in demand, and they will probably find that it's easier to learn it uh, if they were exposed to it younger, just like any other language. Programming is a language. Well, Bernard, we are um, a little bit over an hour. I'm sorry. I know I said an hour, but I didn't want to cut our conversation short because you had so much wonderful information and thoughts and memories to share with us with so many great lessons. But we're going to go ahead and start wrapping up. So what do you have going on that you want our listeners to know about? There are two books available now in the series, A Look Back in Time, Memoir of a Military Kid in the 50s. You can get a copy of that book at my website, www.bernardleejrjr.com. www.b is in Bravo, E-R-N-A-R-D-L-E-E-J-R.com. My third book, which I'll begin working on in April, will consist of the two and a half years I spent at Lawton High School in Oklahoma and the two years that I spent at Cameron Junior College in Oklahoma. My fourth book, God willing, if I live that long and I still have my right mind, <laughs> will be uh, the years that I spent at the wonderful university in Washington, D.C., Howard University and the wonderful time I had getting to know my roots and all of those talented people from all over the United States and, and the rest of the world that I met while I was at that university. Very cool, very cool. So where can people connect with you online? Uh, you can uh, email me at Lee, B is in Bravo, N is in November, 2001 at AOL.com, and you can connect on my website. There are numbers on the website and a contact uh, a button on the website. So you can read about the two books that are there. You can order books from the website. You can actually place a phone call <laughs> from the website. So there are many, many ways that you can get in contact with me. So they can find you at BernardLeeJR, for junior, dot com. Also, you have a Facebook page? Uh, yes, I do. That's uh, Bernard.Lee.Memoir. So it's, face, it's uh, Facebook slash Bernard.Lee.Memoir. Awesome, 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 awesome. 
Bernard, thank you so much for joining me on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. It has been a joy and a pleasure. It always is. Whenever I talk to you, it's so much fun. Thank you. Well, thank you, Michelle, uh, my editor, for the two wonderful <laughs> books that you've produced for me. Uh, your work is actually absolutely beautiful. Oh, thank you. Well, that's our show this week, guys. You can reach out to me online at urbanbookeditor.com or michelleberard.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram as Urban Book Editor. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send in some topics you'd like us to cover on the show. We'll be back at it in July with new interviews, so make sure you guys tune in to the show on July 12th when my guest will be attorney Candace Jones. You can find us twice a month on Fridays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern at the Somewhere in the Middle Podcast.com. Let's continue the conversation. You guys be good, stay mindful, and remain prayerful. Peace and blessings, y'all.